Welcome to the 12th episode of the Skills Factory, talks and ideas about skills from Europe and beyond. This is the podcast series done by the European Training Foundation, the European Union agency working on human capital development in the EU neighboring countries. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most complex topics of our times, migration. Migration and the importance of what migrants bring with them in terms of knowledge, competences and skills. I'm Maria Lvova and I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Sir Paul Collier, British development economist, professor of economics and public policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford and author of the book Exodus, How Migration is Changing Our World, and also author of the book Refuge, Thinking Refugee Policy in Changing World. Welcome, Sir Paul. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. And Umuhan Bardak, expert in the field of skills and migration from the European Training Foundation. Welcome, Umuhan. Thank you, Maria. It's an honor to be with Sir Paul Collier. It's important to point out that our focus today will be on labor migration rather than on refugees and asylum seekers. And when we speak about labor migration in 2020, we've witnessed a major real-life experiment. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many countries have closed their borders and usual movements of migrants have been interrupted. What happened next? The supply chain crisis in the United Kingdom, as in many other countries, is exacerbated by skills shortages, especially the thousands of missing lorry drivers. In Italy, there have been serious problems in agriculture in 2020 and early 2021, as most of the workers in sector come from abroad. We've seen the consequences of losing the low-skilled migrant labor force. In many countries, we can see the impact that the total interruption of migration can have on the labor market. So my first question, there are two major perspectives on migrants. First of all, our societies don't need labor migrants. So can we say that this real-life experiment induced by the global pandemic has demonstrated that host countries need migrants as much as migrants need us? Sir Paul. I think... COVID's been a very peculiar time, really, because it's um, it's hit supply chains through all sorts of different routes. So there's sort of an awful lot happened all at the same time. It's it, it, we will eventually be able to disentangle this, but it's it's sort of um, sort of a perfect storm, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's but it's not clear what the best way of tackling low-skill immigration is, really. Uh, on the whole, I tend to think that um, low-skill immigration is, is, is best handled by circular migration rather than by permanent migration. The, the, the danger with permanent migration is that we really don't know what the future jobs market will be in Europe, but it seems to me it's quite likely to um, to shift away from uh, low skill altogether. I mean, if we get if we look at the really high income countries in you know, something like Norway, Norway uh, really um, has only high wage jobs, and so they're basically all pretty skilled. Um, that I suspect is is really 
Europe's long-term future is a, a future in which really all permanent citizens or permanent residents are highly skilled. So, now Umuhan, do our societies need labor migrants? Well, the experience of COVID uh, pandemic uh, certainly showed us a, a very strong uh, disruption. But I think that most of the countries and also the economic sectors, they tended to treat it as something temporary, exceptional, and that would go away very soon, even if we continue to keep high number of COVID cases indeed. So I am not sure that this experiment um, can show us all the future trends exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, my second point is that certainly it made all the actors to think, especially the governments and economic sectors, that they should be more self-sufficient in the future labor markets. So this means uh, that maybe they think more now about automation, for example, in the low-skilled jobs, which has already started as a trend, but it will continue growing. My third point is, is about the diversity of the labor markets within the European Union. I fully agree that there is more and more high and medium-skilled jobs in the European economy, but they are more concentrated on the north, northern members of the continent, while in the south part of the EU, we see many more need for low-skilled jobs, especially in sectors such as uh, agriculture, construction, tourism, all the services, personal care services. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree with that. I think um, these sort of polarizing questions, you know, is migration good or bad, have always seemed to me the, the wrong question. It's, it's like saying, is eating food good or bad? You know, I mean, it's, 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 once you pose the question, you know it's ridiculous that, of course, some of it is good, just, just like eating, you know, without eating food, you, you'd, you'd be dead. But, um, but that doesn't mean you just want to eat as much as possible um, um, because you get in potentially into a, into a different range of, of problem. Um, and so I've, I've always felt the, the right answer is, 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 is how much is, is, is sensible. And that's where um, with permanent low-skilled uh, migration, we need to look quite a long way into the future because there's, there's so much uncertainty there. Um, we just absolutely, as you said, we just don't know what the technologies will be. Generally, when you face that sort of deep uncertainty, it's best to err on the side of prudence, because if you have too little permanent unskilled migration, it's easy to get more. Um, if you have too much, it's, it's very hard to, to reverse it. And, and as I suggested earlier, this, the circular migration seems to me to be a, a very good way of, of resolving this issue. You can have as much circular migration as you like without creating a, a sort of permanent underclass. And I, I think permanent underclasses, especially if they're 
culturally distinct or ethnically distinct are really quite quite bad news. I mean, it's uh, um, uh, it, it produces an ugly society. Paul, can I ask you to give us the definition of circular migration? Yeah, so circular migration. Europe had a long tradition of it, but I I, I remember uh, being a a temporary worker in Switzerland about 20 odd years ago. No, probably rather more than that, a lot more than that. I was a, a visiting professor at the Graduate Institute of Auditude. And as a temporary immigrant, I, I was then, everybody else in my category in the immigration was Portuguese um, coming coming for the harvest. You know, that seemed to me rather a a sensible way of, of enabling this very high income society, Switzerland, still preserving a small farm agriculture, which had these peak demands. And it was, you know, it was wonderful that Switzerland managed to preserve this small, small farm agriculture, but it created these peaks of the need for relatively unskilled labor, though I'm sure I would have been terrible at it, but, um, but that was a very good way of handling it without creating a permanent underclass. So when we speak about circular migration, it means that migrants are coming for seasonal jobs, right? Well, it doesn't have to be seasonal, but it could be, you know, it could, could equally be time-bound five years. I tend to think of the, of the vital issue here is what are we doing to the sending countries? Are we helping them to catch up with us or are we pushing them further behind? To my mind, that is the fundamental ethical question. We shouldn't be plundering poor countries uh, for those workers that we need. We should be doing it in a way that helps these countries to catch up with us. Otherwise, um, what on earth are we up to? I would like to add here uh, one more point. Of course, I, I've fully agree with uh, Paul on the on the use of mobility and migration for catching up of the developing countries with the technology and know-how of the developed economies i see also that this is really the most efficient one of the most efficient ways to transfer knowledge and attracting foreign direct investment um, my point to add he, here is maybe it's about a bit of more of no, low-skilled migrants, because I think when we talk about circular migration or temporary migration in general, I remember the discussions from the literature. One even said that there is nothing more permanent than temporary migration. I think we shouldn't underestimate the agency, I mean, the migrants as the agency, you know, once they arrive in an environment, which is a working environment, which is paying more. And even with decent working conditions, even if they do lower skilled jobs compared to, let's say, the working conditions in the Gulf, I assume that they would do everything to stay. So that really does depend upon an effective way of, of enforcing, I think, which is a really important point. Let me give you a, 
a shameful example, which is from my own country of Britain, since we're neither a sending country nor a member of the EU anymore. So Britain has 18 of the top 100 research universities in the world. So you'd, you'd, and all of those research universities have very fine medical schools. So you'd think that Britain would be training so many doctors that it supplies doctors all over the world. But actually, it doesn't. Um, in fact, it, uh, it is a very big net importer of doctors. Uh, and that's because the British Treasury has saved money each year by training fewer and fewer doctors. To train a doctor is quite expensive. And so we now train less than half the doctors we need each year for the National Health Service, let alone for any other doctors. Right? So the total number of doctors we train is less than half the ones we recruit for the National Health Service each year. Where do they come from? Well, I, I work a lot with, uh, with, with, with African governments. The, the one I work most closely with is Ghana. Uh, it was a very fine, well-run democracy. There's growing fast with big op economic opportunities. But Ghana has to train, the government of Ghana has to train more than twice as many doctors as it needs, because more than half of them uh, leave for Britain each year. Why do they leave? Because uh, they get much higher wages in Britain than Ghana can possibly afford to offer them. So this just seems to me completely unethical behavior, plundering a poor country uh, to save money in a rich one. It gets worse. 70% of Malawi's nurses end up in Britain, so much so that the government of Malawi recently lowered the standards for nurses in Malawi for training, just so that they wouldn't qualify for, <laughs> for migration to Britain. So this is disgraceful, frankly, that we're running a system like that. So we really must be cognizant of what effects we're having. In this case, we're very clearly draining a poor country of its talent. And, and that, that, that is, I think, shameful. But isn't it a bit uh, utopian point of view that one day all of the country can catch up and be at the same level and then migration will not exist any longer? No, I mean, migration will, will always exist. Of course, people will want to move between countries. But the notion that we should benefit by plundering the most skilled people who are most needed to help poor countries catch up just seems to me really deeply unethical and not what we're about. Not, I mean, we, we have to be about helping poorer countries catch up. Otherwise, we can't you know, look, us, look either ourselves or them in the face. And of course, this, I mean, that's why I go back to the circular migration in which people can come for some years, get get an education, get some job experience, but know that they're going back. And so save and keep their links with their home country. I've got a lot of Chinese students and they nearly all go back because they've got a sense that China is, a, is the future. But that's not happened in Africa yet. My African students all have, have, have absorbed this narrative that that Africa has no future, and so they need to get out. And, and the tragedy is that it's the most promising countries which have these 
high immigration rates because immigration costs money. So it's typically not the poorest countries uh, that have the immigration, but the richest. I mean, Senegal, Ghana, they're both very well run, very rapidly growing countries with loads of opportunities and they're democracies. They, there's, there's no need for a Senegalese or a Ghanaian to say, get me out of here. But, but because precisely of course they're prosperous, they're able to finance some irregular movement. But I would like to add also maybe one more thing here, uh, it's, which seems to be to me a bit of like the difference between low income economies and middle income economies. In a way, the countries, uh, especially emerging economies, for example, with more dynamic economic sectors which are entering into global value chains in manufacturing, in services, it seems that they can offer something to their citizens more than in, uh, in the very low income economies like uh, your examples of Ghana and, uh, and Senegal. Don't you think so? Oh, undoubtedly, but, the, um, but there's still you know, quite a sizable income difference. In a way, a lot of the irregular flows are going to southern Europe, which still has a lot of unemployment itself, rather than to northern Europe. And I think that's not because there are, there's such a big need for, for that labour in southern Europe. It's that southern Europe, unlike northern Europe, um, is, is not effective at uh, either controlling controlled habitation uh, or controlling the labour market to enforce minimum wage laws. My own country of Britain is, is, is very much like the poorer parts of southern Europe. You can get a, a, a job way below the minimum wage and live somewhere that nobody knows you're there. And that's a very, very bad thing because it creates a tension between relatively low-earning workers uh, who are citizens and these irregular arrivals who are not citizens but undercut them. And, and that, that, that political tension is the fertile ground um, for, you know, for the sort of politics of the far right. There is a widespread perception uh, that labor migrants coming to developed countries fill the low pay jobs that are then shunned by native workers. Now, when the migration has been interrupted now, what has happened to the, those labor pay jobs? And can we see actually the relation between these low pay jobs and the wages going down in countries where there are a lot of migrants coming? The basic message that we can find from the, the, the evidence across Europe is that there's virtually no relationship between migration and wages, uh, except at the very bottom of the labor market, where there's, there clearly is some uh, adverse effect of migration. But other than that, migration neither raises the earnings real, real, real wages nor lowers them. It's sort of just independent of that. The, 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 the best evidence I've seen is that it's over a 10 year period, rapid migration might, 
I'd either raise or lower wages by half a percent. So, in other words, it's basically zero. Well, I fully agree with Paul. Uh, there are many studies already clarified that in different host countries, really. So people living from poorer countries with high level of skills coming to rich countries to work on low-skill jobs. Nobody wins from it. The country of origin is losing an engineer. The receiving country does not take an advantage of the skill set. And the migrant himself is, is, is not using his or her potential. So is there any recipe on how to tackle this issue? Paul? Well, I think the recipe is don't do it. I mean, it's, uh, as, you, as you suggest, it's really from a, a sort of global perspective is grossly inefficient. Why is it happening? Because of this big gap between the incomes in poorer countries and very rich ones. And the, the right answer to that isn't, oh, bring doctors from poor countries and turn them into taxi drivers. Uh, so uh, I think it, it's, a, it's a matter of granularity and look at what skills where and what matching is mutually beneficial, but always look for that mutual benefit. I would like to also add here to, to Paul about, uh, let's say, two aspects. So it's not only the needs of the labor market of receiving country, but also it is the needs of the sending country. This means that we need a very good information system indeed about the labor markets and education systems as well on both sides. In my opinion, it is essential in managing labor migration programs. The second point I would like to make is my observation is that labor migrants tend to uh, meet in the receiving countries the need for cheaper workers in general. This means that even if they are high skilled, they could only enter to the low paid jobs. I would like to give one example uh, from the care sector, because we, we did uh, a couple of years ago a survey um, in the sending countries, countries like uh, Moldova and Ukraine, where we have noticed that actually almost more than half of the migrants were women, primarily for work reasons, and they were working mainly in the care sector in uh, in the EU member states, particularly in countries like Italy, Spain, Greece, who have, let's say, a bit lower standards of social protection systems because families are left alone in a way to take care of their children or their elderly. And this comes from the migrant woman workers, basically. But what I what I saw that actually most of these women migrant workers in the care sector were university graduates, if not specialized nurses or, you know, even doctors in some cases. But care sector is a low paid and low skilled job. And we call this actually, we should call it skills waste, in my opinion, nothing else. That's, that's very much what I, what I meant by granularity, is you've got to get down to the sector and the skill and then check whether it's 
mutually beneficial. One of the things that Alex Betts and I recommended in, in Refuge is a sort of matching process where the clearly stated needs of the high income countries can then be matched with, uh, with, with availability, but at a, at a highly granular specific level to ensure mutual benefit. That this is where the, the poorer countries have a surplus and this is where we can match uh, to mutual advantage. Paul, can you give an example of this granularity and how it works, a successful example? Or is, is there any country that implements it successfully? Yeah, I, th- I think so, yes. There's a lot of advanced work on how to set up and design these matching systems. And, um, and I, think, uh, I think America now sort of runs these matching systems. So it's possible, but I've not seen it done uh, in, 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 in connection with the the migration between the European Union members and their uh, and their periphery, the poorer periphery, um, but it would be very, very suitable for it. This is feasible and it would police mutual benefit, really, not even with top-down scrutiny, but with a, with a sort of market-based matching system, really. Also, we observe at the EU level, because uh, from the last uh, new pact, on migration asylum proposed, there are two very concrete uh, proposals on this labor matching system. The first one is creating an EU talent pool. We don't know yet how these proposals will function, but uh, I think it's a very interesting proposal where all the interested third, uh, workers from the third countries can uh, register, uh, as well as the employers from the EU countries can post their vacancies and uh, express willingness to uh, employ migrants. The second proposal uh, made by the European Commission is uh, developing talent partnerships, which I tend to think that it might be more like skills mobility schemes with a concrete training components. Whether it is a school, education, training, it doesn't matter depending on the sector, but also a mobility between the two countries. Um, And then finally, I, I fully agree with Paul that there is a really strong need for matching system. Let's assume that there is no border. It's not that easy. Even in the national context, we have public employment services to find a job in the national labor market. And by going to international labor market, we have many more, um, let's say, complications like lack of information on the employer side, lack of information on the worker side. And all these problems linked to the language, culture and everything. So we really need a new type of uh, intermediaries, more innovative ones, even more than just providing public employment service, I would say. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball and it's really tough to forecast anything. But if we would need to say what will happen with migration in the upcoming decade, Paul, what, what what are your views? What will happen with migration? I think this is so uncertain. I'm an economist and economists have had such a shameful record trying to forecast things. 
that um, that I'm sort of not that foolish. Um, I think that, that the message here is there really is so much uncertainty. We, we don't know whether the net effect of all these changes will end up with Europe having more migration or less. We really don't know. And we don't know what that composition will be. And so it, it seems to me the right response is, is prudence and a sense of don't do damage. And so everything we should be doing is working towards mutually beneficial flows rather than flows which either uh, hit um, poor citizens in our own countries or hit poor citizens in the sending countries. And so, or sometimes both. So that, that basic sort of social hygiene, if you like, that says we're not going to do things that are, that are careless. And in the past, we really have done a lot of things that are careless, frankly. Uh, so that would be my real plea is, is this granularity, look carefully to confirm, to be assured that there is mutual benefit before doing things and recognize that since there's so much uncertainty, a degree of prudence is, 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 is wise. Thanks a lot, Paul. Umuhan. Well, of course, I agree uh, with Paul on the, on the key aspects he, he mentioned. Um, so as long as there is a global inequality across the countries, I don't expect migration to stop, to be honest with you. People will always find a way to get a better future, even if all the borders are closed. Uh, also, this adds up to the demographic trends, at least in Europe and Africa. I mean, it's obvious. I think there is nothing wrong to say that given the demographic increase in Africa and decrease in Europe, inevitably we see the flows of people coming. It's almost like a physics rule to me. Um, the second thing I would like to add is that what I expect though, it will no longer be only the, the richest developed economies which receive migrants, but it, it will be more and more medium income company, uh, countries, especially upper middle income countries receiving more migration. So the destinations will be much more diverse. We already see some trends on that. Take uh, the example of Turkey. It has been a country of emigration and for different reasons. And now country is a place for over 4 million refugees plus 1 million labor migrants coming with the permission to work in Turkey. So 5 million we are talking about in one country. And this happened during the last 20 years. I mean, turning a country from a country of emigration to country of immigration, actually, it doesn't take so long. So this is my second, uh, let's say, expectation with the <laughs> risk of being wrong. And then my last point is, I think with the COVID, if COVID give us one good idea, it is the um, outsourcing of services through digital means. 
And I think this will continue to be the main trend, especially medium and high-skilled jobs, because due to the increasing trend in services at global scale and digitalization, now, for the first time ever, high-skilled people can do the work for foreign companies over the internet, over the platform economy, or others. It's, we are just in the beginning of this journey, basically. We've, as you said, Paul, I mean, there might be many other new technological changes that we even cannot comprehend now. But I think that there will be more and more possibility to get jobs online. So we can talk even about an online labor market. And I see here a big potential for the developing countries. Because, okay, it's by definition, their workers will earn a bit less money than other workers in the developed countries. But the, what they earn will, be, earn will be still much higher than their national average. And they will spend this money in their own country. So um, this could be supported by the governments actively, which is the case already in India, Bangladesh, you know, a number of countries who, who have a lot of its citizens working on these platforms. I think that's completely right, that the, there's a huge scope now it's probably the longest lasting effect of COVID is that we uh, have all got educated uh, in this sort of Zoom technology. The biggest upskilling exercise of our times, yes. Exactly. <laughs> and so it really is a chance uh, to move uh, uh, relatively, to move a lot of jobs, often relatively skilled jobs, to poorer countries in a way that is mutually beneficial because it's not hold jobs that go, it's particular tasks that can be moved. And so it's not job loss in Europe, uh, it's productivity gain in Europe uh, with, with, with a, a, a very good income flow to poorer countries. So I entirely agree with that. It, this, this is a very, very hopeful new technology. Thanks a lot. I think at this point, we really need to wrap up this episode. I would like to thank both of our speakers for this extremely interesting and insightful conversation. Thanks, Emilian, to Sir Paul Collier, Professor Economist from Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. Thanks a lot, Paul, for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. And thanks, Emilian, to Umohan Bartek, expert in skills and migration from the European Training Foundation. Thanks a lot, Umohan. Thank you, Maria. It was a great pleasure for me. And I would like to invite all our followers to subscribe to Skills Factory on all the platforms. And thanks and stay tuned because there is much more to come. Thank you and goodbye.